Who am I? This question has no simple answer. It has a nuance, a history, a journey, and often a standstill. We pause, we question, we wrestle, we dwell. Crippled by a lack of direction, is it just based on my future destination? Do I decide? If not, then who will? The weight of who I could be, who should be, who I want to be. Voices outside and inside create duplicity in the innermost parts of me. Who am I reminds me of people to blame, unearthing the deep, unexamined places of shame. Confused and convoluted with who will call time out in this crazy game. Then there's my reputation. Attempts to create alternative realities, constantly wearing masks that hide mass casualties. Hiding who I am under tight-lipped, hushed-hushed formalities. In hopes of surface reconciliation, longing to present a flawless reputation. But caving under the pressure of minimal introspection beginning to look inside and seeing the trauma and the unaddressed hurts certainly not the picturesque portrait we craft for onlookers and definitely not the real me painstaking effort is taken to make sure the deepest cuts remain hidden pain so deep we stack them up like skeletons in a closet labeled forbidden tell me why we subject ourselves too frantically searching for everything, some hope, some glimmer, that we are more than the sum total of our frailties. My name, my name has meaning, has value, a story. My name has been written down so many times, mailed and addressed for such a time as this, addressed to me for some designed purpose. Do we even know its weight? We sign it on checks scribble it on contracts domesticated by volume engraved in locations few will ever read eventually carved on a stone for all who care to see yet feeling perpetually incomplete never quite enough to really be seen fractured limited restricted tossed around near and far does our name encompass who we truly are? Our names uttered when attendance is called. We hear our names spoken. Many know we are present, but little about just how broken. My name carries meaning for those who know it. For some only know parts of me mask behind what I only want to be seen. My name invokes emotion, reactions, both good and bad, simultaneously. But do those who speak it know me or only who they want me to be I'm neither a faceless name nor a nameless face but neither do I feel fully known I am blind and even I don't know the real me a mere shadow a glimpse a me for only an audience to see I wear a mask painted on my fleeting reputation fragile delicate requiring exhaustive reapplication. With various connotations drawn from my own distorted reflections, the view of my heart is clouded, foggy, dimmed by my own apprehensions. There's one place that my name appears, despite my confused perceptions. 
A place that its inscription is immune from opinionated fluctuations. The writer is my author, my designer, my life giver. I'm fully known and accepted into the beloved. I'm listed amongst his children, protected from flawed misconceptions. The inscription on this particular publication is the very mark of my salvation. The Lamb's Book of Life bears my name, not because of anything I've done, nor has it been erased because of some fatal flaw. The Lamb's Book of Life bears my name because my life bears someone else's. I am His, and He is mine. So my identity is not rooted in my self-generated self-sufficiency or some misplaced passion for self-autonomy. I am not left alone to manufacture some possible destiny. I have been given a name imputed with purpose and meaning, set forth before the foundations of the world by the design of the triune deity. Etched on the pages of this divine publication is not merely letters spelling out my eternal destination. The writer knows me and my every supplication and yet alone grants me my real identification. His child is stamped on my heart. That's who I am and all I'll never need to be. Engraved on my heart is his name and what he says of me. He defines my value, my purpose, my identity. I am his and he is mine has been spoken over me. I am adopted, chosen, accepted. His workmanship sovereignly selected. Amen to that. Um, just our kind of a creative way to to think through what we've been addressing over these last last week and, and this week and and what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is, is fundamentally the real goal behind this series on identity is to change our starting point. Often, I think, as we consider and think through uh, our own lives and even, even in moments of, of self-reflection and thinking about who we are and who we want to be and, and even how others would think of us and how we hope to be perceived in all of those contexts, so many of the influences that come and, and draw us to any of those conclusions are so um, arbitrary and fluctuating. So they're, they're just a, a fluid reality that we're trying to base our identity on, on so many things that are constantly changing that, that really what we want to do, and I think what the Scriptures call us to, is to change our starting point. And that starting point really is the basis for which we can grow in our level of understanding in terms of the identity that has been given to us by God, not something that we self-determine. So the suggestion this morning for you and for myself as well is that, that self-determination is inevitably self-destruction. Because at the end of the day, the thought that it's we discover who we are with inside of ourselves, that we can somehow find a way that within uh, our own determination and our own awareness and the things and desires and drives that we have, those things are so subject to change with so much frequency that, that at the end of the day, there's a level of consistently feeling lost if the starting point is us. And if the starting point is us then we're subject to our own uncertainties about who we truly are 
And, and then we find ourselves influenced by so many different things that we can't differentiate between who we think we are, who we think others want us to be, and then at the end of the day, who we think we should be. It's kind of this huge melting pot of trying to figure out and decipher all of those things, knowing that it's ultimately going to change if the starting point is us. Because we are going to be influenced by tragedy, suffering, sin, difficulty, perception. Something is going to come along and intrude and call into question how we view what we would say is our true self. Let me see if I can approach it this way. So I, I'm going to betray my age a little bit. Just turned 45. Praise the Lord. Yeah, I made it. Uh, I guess a midlife crisis is on the way, I've been told. So I don't know, maybe I'll show up at church with a motorcycle in a couple years. Uh, I hope. That would be awesome, right? That would be great. But um, back in when I was going to school in elementary school, they had two classes that they don't have anymore. Shop class and home economics. Anybody remember those things? Like, yeah, that's great, right? Like, we would go to shop class, and literally, in shop class, they had a table saw. Like, in this day and age, can you imagine giving power tools to elementary school kids? Like, it was the best thing ever. And what they would do is, ultimately, they would allow us, and it was segregated, certainly. I don't remember very many girls in shop class or boys in home economics class, but nonetheless, they would say, well, here's a piece of wood, and what I want you to do is I want you to build whatever you want to build, and you've got a week to do it. So in the process of that, I was able, in my own creativity, in my own ideas, and my own thoughts, to come up with what I wanted to build. And that was influenced by a lot of things, but my desire one time was to build a, a birdhouse. And so I had in my mind what I wanted to build, and I would begin to to cut and to saw and to measure and to hammer and, and to build this thing that I, in my own mind, thought that I wanted to build. Now imagine that moment that somehow, in some insidious way, we would think that the birdhouse would be telling me what it needed to look like. Right? That at the end of the day, that somehow, in some way, there was some level of influence that the actual material that I was using had some weird voice to tell me what I needed to do as that which was creating that very birdhouse. And yet, I would like to suggest to you this morning that's exactly how we live. In the context of our own relationship with the God of the universe, there's a level and a sense in which what we're saying is that God is the one that's doing the work, and we believe that, and theologically we would say he's the creator, the fashioner. The, the Bible gives him numerous terms, the, the potter, and calls us what? The clay, right? So there's this insidiousness that we take into that relationship where we would say, God, I know you're good, and I know you're great, and I know that you're awesome and that you're creator and fashioner of the universe and and i know that you have outside of me given me an identity created me in a certain way with with your imprint and that there's a a fashioning and a forming that expresses the design of the creator itself but i think i've got a better idea i i think i have better options with what what should be happening and yet we find ourselves wrestling with that desire for autonomy and yet knowing that in reality, the basis for God's creation and his perfect plan is so much better 
than whatever I could come up with in and of myself. And yet we search for identity in so many different ways, and we think that we can self-determine that. We can discover that by ourselves, that somehow innately in us we can figure out who we are and who we want to be, and and in the process of that just kind of stick it out and figure out what's best. And yet the reality of figuring out our best self is to go immediately and directly to the Creator. And I would like to suggest to you this morning that the dilemma that we faced on Wednesday in our country is predominantly an identity issue. And, And what I mean by that is that so often there are so many influences that are generating what our hopes, our fears, our dreams, and our desires are. And so when we move to this place of realizing that things aren't working out the way that someone or anyone thinks that they should work out, that it's they're in charge of trying to move it into the direction that it should be. And now you have this huge conflict where, where there's a level of nationalism and identity that is, is so uh, false and deceptive that the identity doesn't come from faith in Christ. It comes from an outcome of a specific desire that we have within the context of how we think the world should operate. And you know what that does? It practically, in, in our own operation, dethrones the sovereign work of God. It, it, it affects our faith in such a way that it dismantles the reality of what God is doing. And somehow, we would even suggest to ourselves limits that God has a perfect plan that he's carrying out and operating in such a way and that we are a part of those things and that he will and is going to glorify himself. That's what he does. And yet we find ourselves wrestling with what our role is in the context of those things. And there's a level of, of anger and unsettledness and frustration that takes place, this, this collective polarizing of our country. And I would suggest that, that a church armed with an identity given to them by God himself is that which God will marshal to be instruments of the gospel to a nation that's hurting. And, and what is that? What, what would we desire most? The outcome of an election? Certainly there's a desire. We have principles and longings and those things. But that's not the end goal, is it? The end goal is that all those who were lost and don't know Jesus would come to faith in Jesus Christ and have their lives changed and be identified as children of God. Are we motivated and mobilized by that passion? I think sometimes our passion has been subverted in different ways. And I think that's why this conversation about identity is so critical. It's because it it moves us to have to reflect and ask ourselves, what's really going on inside? What are we really wrestling with? And ultimately, what are we really worshiping? And I think that that's a question that all of us have to face consistently throughout our walks with Christ. But at the end of the day, it's not hard for us to look at all the environment that's taking place around the world and and even in our own country. And and we pause and we start to think, something's off. And in the midst of finding out what something's off is, we have to even ask ourselves, what's off inside? Where have, have my loyalties and longings and hearts been diverted away from the very place and pattern from which God has designed. 
So certainly, we stand as a a church that deeply desires the truth of God's word to be communicated clearly in the midst of a culture that needs to know its objective truth. We need to be able to stand for what God stands for. And, but we need to also seek that the Lord is the one that's doing the work and be that voice of, of truth and gospel-centered hope and gospel-centered peace. So we can see how identity is really sort of the foundation from which most of the conversations that we wrestle, wrestle with exist. Now, we're struggling a little bit with our pro presenter, so um, you're going to have to trust the written word this morning rather than having it up there. So if you have your phones or you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open them. There's a couple places that we're going to uh, start from, and, and it's going to take us in a couple different directions. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is going to be a starting point for some of the discussion. Now, we've talked through 1 Corinthians before as well, and, and the, the, the church at Corinth is, uh, uh, they're a bit in trouble. Things are a little difficult in terms of them understanding who they are, their roles, there's conflict amongst one another, their challenges with different philosophies and theologies. They, they found themselves in this uh, environment where uh, they, they have this kind of governing authority authority that that is uh, open to a lot of different things so the roman government is fine with just about anything their ethics are kind of all over the map they're living in this idea of this pax romana that they are they are the the superpower of the time that will never ever be defeated and look where we are now right there, there's some similarities with the realities of of what the church in that culture was wrestling with trusting. And in the process of all of the conflict and the uncertainty, and, and even really a church that had lost a bit of its identity, Paul writes to this church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and begins to communicate to them some of the significance of, of who they are and, and even really the work that, that God is doing. And so we're going to be in verse 10 through the end of the chapter. And let me, I'm going to read it for you, and then I want to make some observations that are then going to step us into, then we're going to move to Matthew chapter 7, so you can kind of hold your Bible, or if you've got your Bible app, it's pretty easy to find. But here we go, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. According to the grace given to me, Paul says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. So you can see that Paul is addressing the divisions and discrepancies and difficulties within the context of those who are followers of Christ. So he's, he's talking to believers in a church. And he's saying, you know, I've, I've laid this foundation and there's others building upon it, which is great. But then he gives them a word of caution. Each one, every one of us should take care of how he builds upon it. There's a level of pause that I think would cause us to reflect, and really what I think Paul is doing, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is asking them to ask themselves what is actually being built. As I look at the infrastructure, if you will, of my life, how am I taking care of what's being built? Am I building something for my own accolades or perceptions? Am I building my own theology or philosophy of the world? Am I building my own house? Or is God building my house? 
That's the question. So verse 11, he says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid. So the basis for which anything that's being built is built on a foundation that God has already laid. Now he's going to tell us what that foundation is. Jesus Christ. Right? It's as though he, he comes to this conclusion with just utter speed and urgency, and he says to the church at Corinth, look, as these things are being built, and you've got to be careful and take care of what you're building, realize that the only basis for which you can attach anything in the context of your life as a believer is solely on Christ alone. There's no other foundation that can be built upon for us as believers. It's Christ at its core, the reality of who Jesus is that serves as the foundation. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, or straw, each one work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it was revealed by fire and the fire will test what work, what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only through fire. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple? So now there's a shift, right? The shift is, is what, what the, the foundation is Jesus Christ and what's being built. And in the process of that, there's going to be circumstances that are going to be surrounding whatever's being built. And that is circumstances are going to involve suffering and trial. And they're going to test what's really of God and what's not of God. Save the environment that we live. Not even just in America, but even in our own lives. How frequently have we encountered challenges and suffering, difficulty around us, confusion and uncertainty, and realized that at the core of the reasons we are struggling so deeply to understand the environment around us, is because we've been trusting the wrong things. There's things that we have built and are being built that won't stand the test of time because they're not the right things. Our hope is in the wrong things. And so now he moves us to a, a communication. Of, well, how do we decide what, what should be built? How do we know that we're about the right things? That's the fundamental question. Verse 16, do you know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Let no one deceive you. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, and they are futile. So let, one, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ, and Christ is God. It's as though Paul can't stop himself as he's continuing to examine the things in which he looks at in his life and even the challenges that take place within the context of a, a church that's desperately struggling to figure out their own identity. He communicates. You look at it in the context of the world and it's owned by God. All of it. Death, life, 
future, not future, present, any of those things. And so we can legitimately plant every aspect of what we experience in the context of our lives as under the ownership of God. Yes? We can say that, correct? I mean, I'm not departing from the word. That's what Paul says. That everything in this world as creator and fashion of the universe is owned by God. Including the White House. Correct? Including the Capitol. Including the hearts and minds of men and women. Including our lives and the infrastructure that we're building. There's a level of ownership and authority that God has to speak into those moments. And what does he tell us as he speaks into those moments? It's not as though he's communicating. Well, here's how all of these things and what a terrible person you are. He says in his own analysis, you are a temple. (laughs) You're the place for those who have faith in Christ. You are the residence of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. Identity statement, yes? In that reality, what he's saying is this, the infinite value and reality of God planting himself in the lives of men and women who have faith in Christ. There's this sense in God has taken up residence in our lives so that our identity is in him. He describes us as his temple, the place that God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the the third person of the Trinity, dwells. God of the universe has taken up residence. So what he tells us is that what we build, what our identity on, matters. It makes a difference what the starting point is, right? Like, if, if we're building on anything, save the foundation of Jesus Christ... It's bound to implode and cave in, for it does not have the substance that's only offered by Christ alone. So what we build on matters. The reality of who Jesus is, second person of the Trinity, God in human form, came down, lived in the flesh, died as a criminal, as an, but it was an innocent, no sin, died on the cross, bled, that that sin that we have was given to him, his righteousness was given to us, he paid the penalty we deserve, died, buried, and resurrected. That's the foundation from which all life is built as followers of Jesus. That's where he's moving us to, is the starting point has to change. We don't live in a world as followers of Christ where self-determination is the basis for which we can figure out who we are. Who we are has been defined by us and for us by Christ himself. So what we build our identity on matters. Let me, let me move us to Matthew chapter 7 real quick. Jesus is finishing up the Beatitudes. Beatitudes kind of the, the sense of, of how things operate. So we get a numerous different things as Jesus gives this infinitely long teaching about how we interact with the world, how we interact with God, what it looks like for us to experience the work of God in and through us, and what are some of the, the fruits of that relationship and what it looks like. And so as he, he goes through all of these things from chapter after chapter, he gets down to chapter 7, verse 24, and, and really does sort of... Uh, kind of synthesizes everything that he's been communicating to his followers about how things operate from the vantage point of God 
the, the starting point. And here's what he says in verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat a, uh, uh, on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rains fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished for his teaching. He was teaching them as one who had authority. So, so here's the interesting part as Jesus kind of sums up the Beatitudes is he, he really does capture the essence of what he's communicating. And, and so much of it is, is how we internalize the truth of what God has spoken. The authority that he has within the context of communicating how things are operating and what our, our lives look like is he, he tells us very clearly that based on where we place our foundation is, based on, um, is, is going to, to elicit how we experience the world around us. And so the same thing happens to anyone who builds their house. Whether they build it on the sand or whether they build it on a solid foundation, the circumstances that surround them are exactly the same. The results of those said sufferings, challenges, and circumstances are invariably different. Right? He gives the same description of the events that have happened to those who built themselves their house on a rock versus those who built their house on sand. He tells us, right, the winds came, they blew, they beat the house, and it did not fall. It's not because of the material that was being used, but it's because of what it was built on. And so what I'd like to suggest often as we even look at this as an identity statement from Christ himself is that false identity attempts to create an alternate reality to our own peril. We, we tend to want to manufacture the way we think about things and who we are outside of living into what Christ says we are. There's a, a, a pastor, he's uh, Pete Bisco, he's pastor of Bentry Bible Fellowship up in, up in Carrollton, just north of here. And he uses a term that he coined, which I think is really good. He said, we either have an identity in Christ or a lie-identity in others. And I think that there's something really valuable in considering that is that often as we just live our normal life and thinking about the things that are being built in the infrastructure of our lives, the question really is what, what lies have I believed about who I am in Christ, who he's called me to be? Are we living into an identity or a lie identity is the question. I think that that's really something worth considering. There's a I was thinking about all these illustrations, and the, the Bible is ripe with conversations about who we are in Christ, about our identity. Ephesians 2.10, right? We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So you see that all of the work that God is doing expresses itself in relationship to God working things through us. But you know that the term in Greek, that God uses uh, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus? Poema. Where we get the word poem. <laughs> so just imagine if we translate that. You are 
God's poem. Meant to express the greatness of your creator as he works in you and as you work out the reality of what he's doing inside you. Identity statement. We are God's poem. The place that I went to, rather than giving kind of illustrations of of natural life around us, is uh, the story of Job. Let me just, let's run to Job 26 just real quick. Uh, Job 26 uh, you get this situation where Job has some friends, air quotes, uh, who don't have the best wisdom of the world. And so this entry point is that Bildad is telling him about an analysis of his identity in reference to his suffering. So all of us know the story of Job, right? Cosmic suffering, enormous catastrophic loss. If there's anything that could be taken but his life He's lost it. And everybody around him is trying to help explain to him why life has been so hard. And Bildad says, well, it's because of you. That that no one can be righteous, so you can't stand there and somehow suggest that there's not a level of sin and dysfunction in your life that elicits the reason why your suffering is so bad. Identity statement. The reason you suffer is because of you. And your foolishness, like self-determination has no categories for suffering outside of your own failure. Well, isn't that interesting? So Job begins to wrestle with these things and try and figure out and, and, and really communicate what he knows of God and who God to be. Verse 5 in chapter 26, he says this, The dead tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Sheol is naked before God. And Abdon has no covering. And now he's going to describe God in reference to his suffering. He stretches out the north over the void and hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not split under them. He covers the face of the full moon. He spreads over it his cloud. He has inscribed a circle on the face of the waters and the boundary between light and darkness. Verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble and are astounded at his rebuke. By his power, he has stilled the seas and by his understanding shattered Rahab. By his winds, the heavens were made fair and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. How small a whisper do we hear of him but the thunder of his power who can understand you see what job began to experience in the middle of his sufferings and the challenges is he was wrestling with who god really is and as he began to grow in his discovery of that he realized that he was so limited in his understanding and the power and the potency of god that he described it as but a whisper even with all of the things that he knew about who god was It was but the outskirts, the fringes of the majesty and magnificence of the God, the creator of the universe. And that propelled him to a place of worship of God and discovery of who he truly was. See, I think that's where we have to move to, is that we have to change our starting point. 
The desire is not to understand the world around us and fit all of the challenges we face into our own small paradigm. The starting point is to discover the vastness and majesty and magnificence of the God of the universe. And we have but heard a whisper of how great and magnificent he is. We've only merely, but just for a second, just even understood the outskirts of his character. We have nowhere near come close to mining the depths of who he truly is. Imagine if the core of our identity was part of base, or it was based or built on the foundation of the character and the nature of God. Job began to grow in his understanding of his sufferings by growing and understanding the character of God. What if that was the starting point? From every challenge and struggle we faced, we said, all right, I'm in. Sign me up. I want to understand the character of God as I look at the chaos that surrounds either my individual life or all of us as a nation or whatever. I, I want, I'm in. I want to understand God. Where do I start? All right. We look to Christ. We listen to 1 Corinthians and tells us that the foundation for which we build is Jesus Christ. So let's peer into that just for a second. Live in a reality that the world is fallen and broken by will and by choice. By, by its own nature, we have the story in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 of, of sin that has infected and affected every aspect of creation. Romans tells us that all of creation is groaning in the veins of childbirth. And we too ourselves are groaning that there's something that is incomplete and painful that exists in living in this world. And it's because of the preponderance and evidence of sin everywhere. And then we find ourselves looking at Christ and realizing Okay, Philippians tells us that Christ emptied himself and took the form of a man. That left his throne room on high, didn't decide to just remain disconnected from the creation in which was created. That Christ was a part of creating or created himself. But he entered into that very creation and emptied himself and took the form of a man. Hebrews tells us, that, that Jesus suffered as we suffered, that he can sympathize and empathize with our weakness because he was tempted in every way we've been tempted, and yet without sin. We, we look at that foundation, and we say to ourselves, if I have union with Christ, if I am in Christ, that means fundamentally that I have now been deemed a child of God. So I don't have to access God just as some distant deity that can express his power upon my request or that somehow in some way if I say the right things, do the right things, and pray the right way, I can manipulate God into doing what I want. I come to God as my dad, as my father who longs to hear from his son. And the only reason that I can even be categorically, positionally defined as his son is because of the work and the actions of God alone. God has worked on my behalf, done what I could not do, united me with him because of his work, and left me to experience the reality of his grace and mercy in the midst of my own failures, frailty, and brokenness, and deemed me his kid. I mean, are you kidding me? Who can write? That's just the outskirts of his character. That's just the whispers of his goodness. 
And yet it's the foundation from which all we experience and all we have is built. Are we living into an identity or a lie identity? The lie, the greatest lie, self-determination, this sense that somehow in some way I must do something for God to notice me. I must do something to earn his favor. I must do something to keep his favor. I must somehow in some way perform in such a way that God would somehow then see that I have value and act on my behalf. You have value because you've been created and deemed as though you have value by the creator himself. No performance, no aspect of effort. You're not earning or meriting God's gaze. It's been given to you. And that's just the outset, outskirts of his character. That is but a whisper of who he fully is. How can that not just move us to a place of absolute and total surrender and joy? I was thinking as we was preparing this message and even throughout the week, some of the work that the Lord's been doing on me is, is just realizing his daily provision. And, and we, we all know that scripture, right? This is the day. And who made it? God made it. What does he tell us to do? Rejoice and be glad. Every day that God has given us has been created by God himself. And a response to the, the, the reality of God's creative bringing forth of all of these things is that today, the day that the Lord has created, he has called his people to experience joy because of that infinite, perfect relationship between father, son, father, daughter. And in the context of all of those things, a natural result is what? Gratitude. I live in thankfulness that God has given me a joy outside of himself, outside of myself, because of the intimacy that I have. It's a different starting point. Because of my intimacy with the God of the universe, everything changes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us very much the same thing. What does he tell us? You are a new creation. Because you're a new creation, what happens? The old is gone. The new has come. Right? Fundamentally, positionally, you are a different person through faith in Christ. You're discovering who you are. Your identity is now being given to you by the God of the universe. And we barely hear whispers of who he is. We can barely understand the outskirts of the greatness of his character. Just limited. But that is so much more than we can ask or imagine. Because of that, he has deemed us as his children. So I wonder if we carried it out like this, just for a second. So, so often through the scriptures, we have these statements in the New Testament about Jesus, and they're called the I am statements. These statements where Jesus describes who he is. And those are fabulous things to study. I wonder if we took a moment and ask ourselves our I am statements. Who am I in Christ? So because of what Christ has done and my intimate relationship with him, I am what? What does the Bible tell us? I mean, where do you fill in the blanks with all we've been through? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Matthew, all I am what? I am a child of God. 
outskirts of his character, amazing reality, brand new starting point. I'm his kid. He's the father. I'm the son, daughter. I've been given an inheritance that's imperishable, Peter tells us. Undefiled, kept in heaven for us. We are experiencing the fullness. God calls us his kids. Even calls us his friend. It's remarkable if that's where our identity started. That everything that you and I would experience would come from that standpoint of what God has said over us. I'm a new creation because I'm in Christ. I am not who I once was. So how does that matter? Why is that I am statement so important? Because there are thousands of people, thousands, I mean, I don't have that many friends, even on Facebook. There are a few people in our life that would love more than anything to remind us that we are our past sins. Yep, right? They know who we are and what we've done and identify us based on those failures, flaws, and struggles. But according to 2 Corinthians 5 17, that's not true. That's not me. That's not who I am. I'm new creation. I am not who I once was, all because of the work of Christ. He has created in me and made me something I could never be on my own. I'm made right with God, Romans chapter 5. The term is justified. That means that all of the things that I have done that have defied the authority and work of God have paid, been paid for fully on the cross. I have been deemed his kid and I'm made right so that I have access to God. Even the book of Hebrews tells us that we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, receive help and mercy in our time of need. We do not have to feel distant from God. And yet often we do. And we feel that way because there's oftentimes we have believed a lie identity, not an identity. I'm a temple. The Holy Spirit has moved in, taken up residence. That should really cause us pause if we just sat and reflected on it for a little bit. That means every time... I move my life into sinful actions and sinful behavior. You know who goes with me? God himself. The Holy Spirit is involved in all of those things as I find myself making all of these decisions and trying to determine my own desires and fulfill my own comforts. God is shifting us, but he's right there with us. doesn't turn a blind eye. I am God's workmanship. God's poema. God's poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Job 26 tells us that very reality, that those are just outskirts of his character. We, we, we can never fully understand the infiniteness of God's power and provision and majesty and goodness and character. But even the outskirts, even the whispers, are so much more than we can imagine and draw us into that place of identity and intimacy. What if that was the starting point? The foundation from which our lives are built are not on the circumstances of the world or the challenges of the brokenness we face inside. What if we would say, in Christ, I am. We are, as Paul David Tripp says, we are perpetual identity amnesiacs. <laughs> we're, we're fantastic at forgetting. It's just what we do. That's our tendency. And I think that that's the greatest war we fight that's before us, is the war to remember. 
Remember who we are. Remember what Christ has done. And remember why that matters. We're going to turn to communion here in a second. Communion is that place where God has called us to experience in a tangible way the attitude and the posture of remembering. That's what we want. That's what Christ is calling us to. Remember the work that God has done on our behalf. So for anyone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you're part of the family, and this is a family meal. It's calling us to that reality of our identity in Him. And He wants us to remember and reflect on two very specific things. Your and my brokenness and sin has invariably and inevitably left us dead and separated from God. There's nothing in and of ourselves that would elicit the ability to, to, to find life or to even figure out how to make up for what we've done. We've dishonored a holy, righteous God. But because of his great love, is what the Bible tells us, he came down and provided an avenue for intimacy not just as a, the thought of sweeping our sin under the rug, no, but actually paying for it, that sin had to be dealt with, and it required a sacrifice. Christ was that willing sacrifice that died on our behalf. And so as we move into that moment of reflection, before we take communion together, I'm going to ask that we just pause. And, and I'm going to ask that even in the moment of silence that we're here, one-on-one, we, we deal with God, or maybe even more important, we let God deal with us. And we, we begin to reflect on, I am, in Christ, this is who I am, but these are the areas where I know God has been addressing and dealing with in my heart that I've been unwilling to lay down. I've nurtured sin in my heart. I've allowed those things to be, uh, become complacent against uh, who Christ has called me to be, and I've just become apathetic in my own walk with Christ. And, and maybe what Job said, the, the whispers of God's character would draw us back into the reality of who he's deemed us to be. So let's just pause and, and pray together for a minute. I'm gonna, it's going to be silent for just a few. as one-on-one. We just wrestle with what God is doing. And then I'm going to pray for us, and I'll lead us through communion, and then I'll pass it off to the worship team. Let's pray.